This podcast is a TWTT production. Let's enjoy sake. Hot or cold. Let's enjoy sake. All together with you. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode number four of Taste with the Torji, or TWTT, the podcast. I'm Simone Maynard from Melbourne, Australia, and of course, joining me, as always, even though it's only episode number four, is Maki Tanaka from Tokyo. Maki, how are you? Hello, I'm good. Thank you. So, Maki, we uh, we do have a very special guest with us today, which I'm very, very excited about. But just touching base with you, how have you been since we last spoke, and any exciting sake that you've uh, that you've come across since then? Well, yesterday I was wait, um, out with my sake friends, and I went to an um, Okan specific bar, and I had warm uh, chojing. The, the one, the bottle with the newspaper wrap. Yes, yes. That, excellent. Really Wonderful. good stuff. Yeah, my, it's actually my husband's favourite sake, the Chochin, oh, but nice. we've uh, we've not tried it warm. So perhaps next time we order 400 Isho bins from Black Market Sake to stock our house and fridge, uh, <laughs> we'll have to make sure we try that. And I just wanted to make mention, those listening that are members of the TWTT community uh, and have been following the Zoom sessions, Last Monday, we had uh, Yamamura Shuzo from Kumamoto, which is the first time we'd actually visited Kumamoto Prefecture in uh, Kyushu, so southern Japan, and it was really great for session 101 to have Yamamura-san. He had never done an online event before and was a little bit nervous, but it was actually a really wonderful, heartwarming, delightful session, lots of beautiful stories including hearing about his grandmother who was painting up until the age of mid-90s or late 90s. Uh, and just, yeah, just wonderful sake stories as we do try and bring you uh, with these Zoom sessions and also with this very new podcast. Since I've spoken to you last, Maki, I have finished off my Gozenchu sake, of course, episode, uh, or so, sorry, session 100 of the Zoom sessions was featuring Gozenshu, and I think I went a little overboard and ordered six bottles of sake because I was so excited that we got to session 100, and I finally finished those, and I have to say the Boraimoto Nama, or the Nigori Nama, was uh, absolutely delicious. My first time trying that, I usually get the Hide, and I think that's now my new um, Gozenshu favourite sake. And of course, since our last podcast episode where we featured Keith Norum, I managed to get my hands on the Kuro Black, the Masumi, and it's only a 300 ml bottle, so you can imagine how quickly that disappeared, but definitely worth seeking out and a very delicious sake. But that brings me to today's special guest, of course, um, who I met in March 2019 during John Gortner's SPC Level 2 in Chiba Prefecture, which was where he was based for quite some time, but not anymore at this point, which we will hear about today. But just bringing it back to TWTT, when I started this uh, project, TWTT, or the Zoom sessions back in 2020, I reached out to this young man and uh, asked for some assistance, advice, if you wanted to be involved. And of course, like everyone else who's a part of the wonderful community that is TWTT, he said, of course, 
and it was session number three that he joined as a uh, guest and interpreter alongside Shoji-san from Kiroizumi Shuzo, which probably has already given away who I'm talking about. <laughs> he then went on in 2020 to uh, help out a lot more with TWTT as interpreter for several other sessions and, of course, in 2021 as well. But then we kind of lost track of this man, even though we knew he was up to lots of exciting things. Um, I recently had a little conversation, a well, little being about, what, two hours um, on Zoom <laughs> to find out what he was up to and asked if he would be happy to come on this podcast and talk to us. Of course, he's a pro podcaster himself with Sake On Air, and I speak, of course, of Mr. Justin Potts. Justin, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you so much for for reaching out to me. This is this is super exciting. I I, I don't get to be on the side of the mic very often, and actually, I haven't really done this uh, in English all that often, to be honest. So this is kind of a new experience for me. So no, I'm 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 stoked. I'm, oh. It's wonderful to see you, see you, see you, uh, lovely ladies, this this evening, this morning, where you're at. <laughs> so just on that note, of course, where I am, it's uh, 11 a.m. Where Maki is, it's 9 a.m. But 6 p.m. for you, Justin, which of course means you're on the other side of the world. So uh, yeah. before we talk about where you are and why you're where you are, perhaps just a little brief rundown on uh, who Mr. Justin Potts is and why we're talking to you today. Yeah, sure. Why you're talking to me? That's a that's a question that may forever go unanswered. But I can <laughs> I can tell you what I've been up to a bit. Um, so yeah, my name is Justin Potts. Um, I I'm originally from the Seattle area, from the Pacific Northwest. Um, however, I've been in Japan pretty much since about 2004. Um, so gosh, we're you know on and off a little back and forth about 18 years or so. Um, and I've been working, uh, I've been very involved with the world of sake for, I don't know, the last 12 years or so, I guess, um, on the ground uh, there in Japan. So I originally got into sake or um, had, you know, my own discovery of sake and the world of sake um, through Koji. Um, and that discovery came through work with a lot of different um, producers around rural Japan. So not just sake producers, but um, shoyu, so, uh, soy sauce makers, miso makers, um, folks making mirin and, and different things like that. Because for a number of years, I was actually working on, um, I guess, uh, sort of rural development and revitalization projects, doing project planning and project development and sort of um, new business development for a lot of small producers around Japan. Um, and a lot of it was related to agriculture or, you know, the products that are made as the, as the result of um, the agriculture. And so I spent a number of years um, basically traveling all around Japan and, or, frequently traveling to the same areas over and over and over again, working with a lot of um, the same producers in, in different areas. Um, and in doing that, uh, it, it was, it's funny that one of the, the very, one of the very first trips, if not the first trip that I made um, when I started doing that was to a uh, Tane Koji. So the Koji spore maker in Toyama, um, which is, um, so 
um and super tiny super tiny like i was i was up uh i visited akita kondo which is one of the larger makers a couple of years ago um and i told him that that's that was the first place i went he's like nobody nobody goes there nobody's <laughs> like what's how do you what <laughs> you gotta be cute what um, but anyway, yeah. So that was like the, one of the first trips I made. That when I first started really getting into agriculture and working with local producers, is I got drug into this um, koji makers. I couldn't, I, I could understand the words he was saying, but I couldn't wrap my mind around what I was hearing. Um, but the enthusiasm and the passion of this individual was just intoxicating. Um, and that was kind of this instant where I kind of grasped that there was something out there that was really, really crucial um, and really, really special. But I didn't, I hadn't quite mapped out mentally where that fits in sort of the whole landscape of food and beverage production and fermentation and all that stuff mm. um but then from that just because i was spending so much time with farmers and local producers i ended up spending a lot of time with soy sauce makers sake makers um a lot of those folks and yeah i at that time yeah the the whole world of koji just the whole idea of it just absolutely blew me away and the fact that it was tied into everything that makes everything good and worthwhile and delicious and meaningful in Japan I mean honest to goodness like at the end I mean at the end of the day if you're going to look at try and drill it down to one really unique differentiating factor that contributes to flavor health all these components I mean that's it you know mm -hmm. um and when I when that spark when that when that light clicked on you know I started googling and at that time it was sort of before the shiokoji boom and before the amazake boom and before that stuff so i started looking in japanese and even in japanese there wasn't a lot of information online and i was like baffled that how could this thing that is so ubiquitous you know not have information publicly available about it so anyway um through that just started as an extension of my work that i was already doing started working with a lot of different sake producers and different and different folks and the more I started doing that, the more it just kind of snowballed and people started asking me to do more things uh, around sake. Um, I found sake to be just the most um, fulfilling um, and satisfying means through which to be integrated into that world. Um, and I saw it as sort of a pillar of um, sort of everything. It sort of ties everything together um, that as far as just the quality of life and livelihood of you know uh, folks in Japan and myself as well you know um and so yeah it was a conscious choice to just kind of be involved in that and then yeah as a result of that I guess yeah long story short I ended up how long how long how long you want to do this um <laughs> I, let's see I I because I, I can't even remember really all all um, all these things, but basically, yeah, I started doing a lot of work in sort of brand communication, development, education, things of that nature. Uh, I ended up spending about a year and a half in Italy doing almost not only sake related work, but a significant chunk of it was sake related work. And so I was doing events pretty much three days a week for like almost a year um and i realized how much i didn't fully understand as a result of that um it was just really really exciting to be able to connect so many people both with sake both on a consumer level as well as a business on a you know 
in terms of business opportunity, it was absolutely fantastic. But the more I spoke about it, the, I, the more I realized I didn't um, know, I did not, I wasn't satisfied with my understanding of what, of what I was preaching. Right? And so um, I wanted to get into the brewing side of it. Um, long story short, I moved from Milan to um, the countryside of Chiba. Um, and I moved straight into the brewery at Kiduizumi. Um, I was there for a few seasons. Um, just, you know, Kurubito, just brewing, brewer, full on. Um, the same time I was, however, at the same time, I was still doing a lot of other work. So I was doing a lot of work in um, like uh, agritourism um, development, doing a lot of um, consulting and um, business project development for a lot of different producers or regions around Japan. Um, a lot of it sake related, some of it, some of it not. Um, and that was just all ongoing. Um, I, yeah, I was doing that. I went, I was with, I worked with uh, Japan Craft Sake Company for a while, um, doing work there. Um, I spent, before I came over here, it wasn't sake specific, but I spent, um, for the last couple of years, I was working with a Danish bioscience company called uh, Christian Hansen, um, doing um, fermented beverage business and product development here in Japan. Um, so I was working with a lot of different um, beverage makers, not just sake. Um, um, working with really unique yeasts and uh, lab strains, um, trying to make different funky stuff. Um, I work with the Japan Sake Shochu Makers Association, um, doing the Sake on Air podcast. Um, put together the um, organized the first Sake Future Summit in 2020 um, in the middle of COVID. Um, I do a lot of um, um, catered visits and experiential planning for professionals in the food and beverage industry in Japan. So, you know, for a number of years, I um, helped develop and run and translate and organize um, programs for master's students and um, researchers at the University of Gastronomic Sciences in um, Italy. Um, I did that for a number of years. I did a lot of um, sake tourism product development and course development um, for the Sake and Shochu Makers Association. Um, I, yeah, I was kind of the the navigator facilitator for the the JSS Sake Shochu Academy um, for the last four years. Um, yeah, my longest stint brewing was with like consistently was with Kiduizumi, but I spent a little bit of time, not enough to like really, really put on my resume, but a little bit of time up at uh, Mitobe Shuzu up in Yamagata, um, mm -hmm. Yamagata Masamune. Um, thanks to Taste with the Toji, I went and spent a week with um, the folks at um, Ota Shuzu, makers of Benten Musume out in Totori. Um, and then, yeah, I don't know, I spend a lot of time with a lot of different breweries for one reason or another around yeah. Japan. And yeah. yeah, anyway, now I'm in America. <laughs> <laughs> and the list goes on. So, so having said all that, Justin, uh, yeah. lots of lots of things you were involved with in Japan, and I'm sure that many people in Japan miss you, but you had an opportunity, opportunity present itself and you accepted. The timing was right. 
and um, you're on a new adventure and yeah. something that, that some a few people know what you're doing, but um, many people yeah. that are listening probably don't. So tell us where you are and why you're there and what you're doing. Yeah, so I, right now I am tuning in from the town of Hot Springs, Arkansas, um, which is a lovely little town um, that has hot springs, <laughs> as the name would suggest. Um, but um, I am working with for um, Origami Sake Company, um, which is a new sake brewery that, if all goes according to plan, will hopefully have sake commercial product out into the market probably spring 2023 so fingers crossed we'll see um we're working on it right now um but yeah i made the move out here just about a month ago um if that's if my math is correct yeah i, I did not think i would move back to the us um not because i was avoiding it i did I couldn't envision a scenario where it would make sense for me to come back given the time and the nature of my work. And I was very, very happy in Japan and with the nature of what I was doing. And I loved sort of my role in Japan and in the realm of sake. And I was, yeah, really thoroughly enjoying the nature of the way I, I was able to contribute. So I couldn't really envision what my role could be. Um, outside of outside of Japan. Um, however, that opportunity presented itself and now I'm in now I'm in Arkansas. <laughs> so Justin, um I I thought Aragam Sake was on Instagram for a couple of years, but I could be wrong. <laughs> <laughs> what, you might be our... right. <laughs> oh really? Okay. So what, yeah. what is Aragam Sake and how did it get started? Yeah. So um Origami sake has actually, in some capacity, been in the work for in the works for close to a decade. Actually, um, the sort of the roots of this started a really long time ago, long before I ever had any sort of involvement in it. Um, to try and give kind of the summarized version of this, um, so here there's a gentleman by the name of uh, Ben Bell. Um, who is from Arkansas and who has worked in the drinks industry here in Arkansas for um, a long time. Um, Arkansas is far and away the leading rice producing region in the United States, like far and away. Um, a lot of people um, associate it with California and California does produce a lot of rice. Um, however, Arkansas is far, far above and beyond, and especially now with um, water and drought issues and things like that. I mean, it used to be maybe we may produced two to three times as much as they did in the state of California. Now it's more like probably five, six times as much just because of climate change and droughts and things like that. The amount that they can even produce in California, from what I understand, is actually decreased a lot just in the last few years. And so... Um, him being in the drinks industry and being rooted here and understanding the relationship between local rice um, agriculture, um, as well as the fantastic water sources here. So hot springs, <laughs> we have natural spring water, beautiful lakes and rivers. We've got some of the cleanest, most fantastic water sources here um, in the region out here. Um, he sort of had this vision of there's no reason that um, not just Arkansas, but this whole area kind of around the Delta down here, around Arkansas, Louisiana, Mississippi, down along the Mississippi River down here, if there was ever to be 
a Napa Valley of sake in the United States, this is absolutely where it would have to be. I mean, this is the, the you know, this is the heartland of not just rice agriculture, but really agriculture of the United States, um, you know, and having the Mississippi here and um, everything here. This is this is really the history of America and America's food and food culture really um, is down here in the South. A lot of it came from, you know, this part of the country. So we sort of all, all had this vision for a long time that, gosh, it would be really great to do that. Um, the city of Hot Springs, where the brewery is now, where it's currently being built, where it's kind of half brewery, half construction zone at the moment, um, their sister city is in the town of Hanamaki, which is in Iwate Prefecture. Um, they happen to have one of the most active sister city relationships out of anywhere in the United States. Um, through that, um, Ben, he was thinking, you know, in order to set up a sake brewery here, I have to understand sake making, right? Um, so he wanted to come and do a stint someplace in Japan. Through that um, connection, um, he was set up with the folks at Nambu Bijing um, up at Ninohe, sort of up in, in northern Iwate. Um, so he went and spent a couple of years with them um, brewing and sort of learning about that and and doing that. And his plan was to come back and um, open a sake brewery. Like that was his goal, his his vision, right? And so, I mean, we're talking, I'd have to ask him to check on dates, but I mean, this com I mean, the conversation of getting someone to go to a brewery in Iwate and do that started back in like 2012. Um, and so I think I have to check when Ben was over there, but I want to say it was about like 2015 to 2017, kind of in that window. Um, but through that, he was connected there, went there, came back here, um, you know, and really, you know, it's starting a sake brewery isn't just making sake, it's starting a company, it's finding partners, it's finding investors, it's finding a place, it's, you know, we're, we, there's so many logistical challenges to making something like that happen, right? And so he worked for a number of years really trying to make that happen, um, ran into a number of roadblocks and in doing so ended up going to um, New York to um, work on the, the sake portfolio over at um, Skernick Wines and Spirits in New York. Um, and while he was there doing that, a friend colleague who he had sort of always been um, talking to, sharing this sort of vision and dream with, who was also um, here in Arkansas, a gentleman by the name of Matt Bell, of no relation, <laughs> same last name, no relation. Um, um, he's a gentleman who has um, set up and run a couple, uh, several um, companies here um, in construction and solar energy and things like that. Um, and so he was really sort of touched by that vision and was really, really excited about that. Um, and however, you know, he had his own companies to run and his own thing going. Um, but it had sort of always sort of just been in the back of his mind, gosh, what, you know, what an amazing contribution that makes so much sense for this region, right? To give back to the, this, the local agriculture, which is, you know, there's just so much you can tie in there and it's, you know, agriculture, just like every, everywhere is so undervalued and so underappreciated. And so to have that sort of resource, that sort of, that sort of resource here in Arkansas 
to be able to utilize that in such a way that is so unique to here. Just the idea of turning this into, you know, the Napa Valley of sake and really having the root of that starting here and being here, which is something that really resonated with him. Um, ben was in New York. Matt was here. Um, Matt decided that, you know, um, his previous businesses and endeavors, he was going to, you know, set those aside. And originally he was looking into early retirement, um, but he was so excited about this idea that he was like, we got to do this. And so he called up Ben and said, look, that sake brewery thing you've been telling me about, like, I think this needs to happen and I'm going to do it whether you're come with me or not. So you better get your ass back from New York. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, this is what, maybe 2021. So this is just like last year. I think if my timeline is correct. And so, yeah, they moved back. And so they set out to start to like set up what does origami sake look like? Um, um, but it's really just this year, just in the last real six months or so that really the place and the construction and sort of all the stuff started coming together. And so they knew what they wanted to do. They wanted to make um, sake that, you know, celebrated um, the agriculture and the natural resources of the region and would really, um, serve as something that could be representative of the culture and the natural resources um, and things here, right? Um, and so in doing that, um, you know, again, that, that's that's two people. It's like, okay, here's one person who's understands the drink business pretty well and understands what it means to make sake because Ben was, you know, there for a, a couple of years. And then Matt, who kind of understands the business side, but had no exposure to sake, um, aside from thoroughly enjoying it, you know, on a, mm -hmm. on a personal level. And they went out looking for people that could help them realize actually, okay, how do we actually make this sake happen? You know, um, and through kind of a mutual acquaintance, I guess. Um, someone reached out to me just this last June, July. So not that long ago. I mean, six months ago. And, you know, I had, I had known Ben for a while and I had known of this sort of image or vision of origami sake and what they wanted to do for a while. And I am, I have so much respect for the people who are brewing sake outside of Japan, the amount of time and energy and effort and dedication that those people are putting in mm -hmm. to try and make something that they believe in. Cause it's, it's hard. They don't have to do it. There's so many other things they could be doing. Mm -hmm. You know, the fact that they chose sake and they have so many hurdles in front of them. Yeah. Um, and I think also that they're, they're, they're kind of, they're forever opening themselves up to judgment, right? Because Oh, People completely. are always going to be comparing sake made outside of Japan <laughs> to yeah. sake made within Japan. You know, and it's, and there's just, there's so many barriers, not, I mean, starting with small business is hard enough in and of itself, right? Regardless of what you're doing, but then having to figure out, you know, there's just so many parts to it. If you understand mm. sake, sake making, there's so many small decisions you can make and so many things that impact that. And just the same resources are just not available mm. Mm. outside of Japan and access to knowledge and people with, you know, actual skill set, you know, um, experience um, to a degree that can, you know, really contribute to helping folks get closer to, you know, realizing what, um, what is they're trying to accomplish, like they're just, they're finite still, you know, um, and so 
I have nothing but I have so much respect for the people that are doing that. And the reality is that being so much closer to the people who are going to be buying your sake or the people you're selling it to, right? Having a small business, your you know your entire livelihood is invested in what you're doing, right? So the way in which that sake is presented and communicated comes from a very different place than an imported sake, right? No better or worse, but it's very different. The terms in which you're communicating and sharing on are very different. Um, and so I have so I just think it's such an important role to play. Um, but, um, for me, having spent years living and brewing sake in Japan and working with farmers, for me personally, brewing sake outside of Japan just wasn't interesting to me because to me personally, the, the joy that I found in that and the meaning and the fulfillment that I found in that was being very close to the farmers that I was working with, was knowing them personally, was going out to the fields, was also seeing, you know, knowing the local, you know, craftsmen and artisans that were, you know, making pottery, that were doing glass mm. work, that were doing all these things, to mm. knowing the other local koji maker in town, to knowing the local restaurant owners in town, like to be in that ecosystem and see how that feeds into and contributes to all that. Um, for me, that's the the role the world that I wanted to be in when it came to making sake, just because for me, right? And I had not seen an example of that outside of Japan that to me just would have been exciting personally, right? Um, but when I heard, you know, uh, three or four years back, you know, when I talked to Ben, he was telling me, you know, this is the place and this is this thing that, you know, initially it clicked to me, you know, it was, I was like, that is, for me personally, that's the most interesting version of sake making that I that I could imagine, you know, um, in the US. And that's, I, I was always thinking, wow, I really hope that that comes to fruition someday, because that would be a, that would be a really neat thing, you know, lo and behold, I, did, I had no idea that three or four years later, I would be involved. That was never a part of a conversation or any sort of anything. But um, yeah, it just sort of came up, they were looking for someone with just this very, very specific skill set. Um, and so yeah, they reached out to me and here I am. And so now mm. we're going to see if we can get sake to people here in the U.S. in places that probably a lot of, if, if everything works out the way that we're, you know, attempting to, um, the way that we hope, the way that what we're setting out to do, you know, we'll be able to get sake to people, um, hopefully in places that maybe wouldn't have had access to it otherwise. Um, and we really want to just improve the accessibility of sake, not in terms of like dumbing down profile or anything, things like that, but just having it be more readily available at more places where people generally do their food and beverage shopping, um, have it, you know, closer to a price point that people can choose to buy a bottle if they want, you know, um, once a week, as opposed to having it really have to be a special occasion thing. I, I think you started um, answering my next question and um, that production side, um, there's so much passion that I, I I just can't wait to see what's going to happen. But um, does Oregon Sake have a vision of who they're catering to? Is there like yeah. a, a target market for them? Yeah, um, you know, uh, I hope we're looking, uh, honestly, we're looking to create a market because at the end of the day, um, so 
sake only makes up about 0.2% of the entire, you know, alcoholic beverage category sales or whatever in the, in the US. So it's basically non-existent. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's almost the equivalent of not even existing, right. you know, in the grand scheme of things. So as much as, you know, export is growing year on year um, and more people are discovering sake, the reality is that the number of people that act actively make a choice to have that involved in their in their life, you know, are very, very few. Um, and the number of people that are in a position to regularly um, have that as a part of their life are very, very few. Um, and so, you know, the brewery is being, you know, built at a scale that is, it's, when we're ready, I think it, it'll be the, the largest um, US owned, American owned, um, sake brewery in the United States when we're ready, as far as just in terms of production capacity, um, you know, we're going to be nowhere near out of the scale of, you know, the Takara or the Gekkeikan or whatever over in California that have their operations or anything like that. Um, probably not as big as Dasai in New York, you know, when they, wherever it is that they open, but, um, we are going to be, you know, able to make significantly more than what a lot of the smaller breweries are doing, uh, around here, which means that, um, will ideally, hopefully, be able to offer it at a price point that is something that people can, if they try it and they like it, they can go back and get themselves another bottle. Like it, they won't have to think too hard about whether or not that's a purchase they should make, you mm -hmm. know, just from an economical standpoint. It's not going to be cheap. It won't be cheap, but it's not going to be like, you know, you know, a lot of sake here, you know, you're, you're looking at $30, $40 a bottle just to get in the door, you know, for a lot of you know, sake just in general. So, um, and then also being where we're at. So we're in Arkansas. Nobody distributes sake in Arkansas. It's not <laughs> worth everybody's time. You know, in a lot of in a lot of parts of this country or, or, or of this this area of the country, like just it's in a sheer numbers game. You know, if you got a lot of these small breweries in Japan that are coming to bring their sake to the U.S. You know, you don't go, you go to a city like LA or New York where you have 10 million people. You don't go to a state that has a population of like one and a half million people, you know, mm -hmm. that have zero experience with the category, you know. Um, it just doesn't make sense in terms of resources. However, two-thirds of the country, you know, the reality is that they're they love tasty beverages as much as the next person, right? You know, um, and so we are really hoping to get sake into this part of the country and sort of do the work that a lot of the other breweries are not in a position to be able to do, frankly, not because they don't want to or they can't, they just, they, it's not, it's not feasible in terms of, you know, um, just the economics, the connections, the so many things, you know, and being rooted here and having something local here and local means right. something, you know, here people want to go from the buy from the local brewery or, you know, drink from their local winery and things like that. And so to be able to get sake into this sort of area of the country to start with, um, as well as get on to, you know, because of the, the scale that we're looking at, it's entirely possible that we could be on, you know, the shelf of a you know, a major supermarket chain in a, maybe not the entire country, but for a certain part of the country, you know, so right. that people could, you know, pick up a bottle while they're grocery shopping, you know, they wouldn't have to go out of their way to a specialty shop or order, uh, you know, 
Um, so that's that's what we're hoping. So there's a lot of education that's going to be involved with that. So we're in the process of working with and, and meeting with distributors right now. We have to set up distributors for anybody who works in the U.S. or with sake or alcohol in the U.S. knows that distribution and the legal hurdles are an absolute nightmare because every state is pretty much a different country here um, as far as regulation goes. So, um, you know, we have to set up um, distributor partnerships for all different states and regions of the country. So um as a part of that we're really um between ben and myself you know we're both in positions where we can go out and do the footwork and also as far as education and training um um distributors and their staff and and things like that so that they know what it is they've got you know um and understand the category so um it's it, obviously your sake is positioned differently from the markets in New York or LA, um, and the the um, that um, focus on the connection to the locality. I, I'm wondering if you're trying to produce a taste profile that goes with the local food or the the cuisine. Yeah. Um, so for those who love sake, um, you've probably realized that. Um, finding a sake that that goes with um what you're snacking on isn't the hardest thing in the world to do it, it, you generally win <laughs> nine times out of ten maybe 99 times out of 100 um we are it's not so so yes we are cognizant of that um as to what people are actually eating um and so you know we are going to yes we are going to try and put our sake in pizza joints yes we're going to try and get it at a taco places mm. at barbecue joints you know that's something we're absolutely going to try and do um so we are certainly being cognizant of that um we want it to live in those spaces steakhouses whatever you know um yeah so yes are we thinking okay what is a sake that goes with barbecue maybe not that we're not necessarily trying to you know reverse engineer Mm -hmm. that precisely mm -hmm. but we are envisioning our sake living in those places mm -hmm. um so yeah and is there a, a rough a rough idea of how many in inverted commas styles of of sake you're <laughs> hoping to produce let's say in the in the short term obviously it, it'll be an ever-evolving um lineup but uh, yeah. Do you do you kind of have a, a a game plan in mind when it comes to to styles of sake or we yes and no um, we are where we're at right now we're looking to launch with three different distinctly different bottles of sake um, we have kind of the first five kind of mapped out and are we're envisioning that we will have these sort of five different um labels essentially all origami sake different label or whatever different icon representing each one um and that will all be very distinct and that will be sort of just our baseline that we get out to everywhere that will hopefully cover the bases for what people are looking for and to be able to give people a really taste of sort of the spectrum um and be able to kind of um um, you know, surprise people, um, as well as give them something that's just generally delicious. Um, at 
however, at the same time, you know, we don't know what's going to sell. We might have mm -hmm. these five in our mind and for some reason, nobody wants this thing, you know, yeah, nobody yeah, buys yeah. this one or, you know, so then what do we, you know, we, we kind of go back to the drawing board and we'll think about that. You know, we, we, it's going to, I don't, you know, until it's actually out there living in the market, you know, I really, I really don't know. It's hard to say, um, but yes, we have kind of mapped out what we plan to go to market with initially. Um, yeah. And so um, that being said, um, we also see ourselves as being in kind of a unique position to be able to um, be a source for a lot of information. You know, we're working, we have a lot of support, so we're working directly. We have um, a sort of um technical consultant um with Nambu Bijin who's helping us uh um Tamakawa-san guy's an all-star um and then I you know I consult with different brewers or breweries that I know or have worked with or if I have a question I reach out to folks and it's absolutely amazing the degree of just openness and support that I get it's it's insane, actually. Mm. I, I'm almost like in tears every time I get a response back from somebody, mm. um, you know, and so that's been really great. Um, and so, you know, we're really hoping that this can become a place where um, also other brewers or makers of beverages and things can actually come and, you know, hopefully learn and see different things. So our plan is to do a lot of different things, actually, you know, mm. um, because we're looking to reach a certain scale so that we can get sake to enough places and at a certain price point we're sort mm. of looking at that initial line we're trying to figure out you know, we have we have to keep it going right we have to make sure we sell we sell sake and can keep selling sake so we're we're very much mindful of you know the cost and efficiency and time and energy and all those things so we're kind of looking at how, how can we take these and just really dial them in so that we can make something that we're really proud of, um, but is also really consistent and isn't going to take all of our energy to do mm. so that and at the end of the day, hopefully we can spend 30, once we get it all dialed in and things are hopefully selling someday, cross our fingers, you know, this will in a good way be almost kind of routine work so that then we can take the other 70% of our energy to do a whole lot of other stuff. Mm. Um, so um, we plan to do a lot of different things. <laughs> and, and and that's kind of, I suppose, the beauty of, of a new business is that you do have that flexibility. And that leads me, of course, to the name, um, which when yeah. I first, when I first heard it, I sort of thought, really? Or origami? Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. and then I, yeah. I guess the more I thought about it, I took on my own interpretation. And I thought, actually, it's kind of cool, because it it, yeah. When I think of origami, I think of all the different shapes you can make with a piece of, with one piece of paper. Yeah. So it it kind of yeah. when I when I did speak to you recently, Justin, and we had a little chat yeah. about about the name. It yeah. kind of to me, it kind of made sense, and that's that was my interpretation after after a little bit of deep yeah. thought. Was like there there is that flexibility yeah. for you guys there, and you can yeah. you can have a lot of fun with that name, especially when it comes to labels. So any anything to add yeah. on on the name naming of the the, the brewery. Yeah, for sure. So you're spot on in that. Like one of the beautiful things about origami is that, right, it's you take this, you, something so simple as a square piece of paper and, you know, you can transform that into an infinite number of expressions, right? Um, and just the process of learning to do that and doing that. And, you know, it's just, 
I, I think there's a lot of things that are very synonymous with mm. um, the craft of, of sake making. So that thought was very much in mind um, with regards to the naming. Um, but then, I mean, in complete honesty, the other reason is because it's so easy, you know, and sort of looking at the market. So kind of going back to what we I was saying about sort of the market that we look to reach and the type of scale and sort of expansion and things like that. Like, um, it makes a lot of sense for what we're trying to do. If we were, you know, a very, very super teeny tiny brewery that was only producing, you know, 500 cases a year, and it was this very boutique stuff that we're trying to get in, you know, high-end restaurants or something like that, origami sake would be a terrible name. People would be like, it, it, it wouldn't live in that kind of space. They'd be like, really? You're selling me origami sake from Arkansas? Like, like, <laughs> give me a break. We need like, like it, it's, it's ridiculous. And I, you know, and, um, I think for us, you know, the name origami sake, as far as reaching those places, I think we can reach those places eventually, but we'll have to prove ourselves. I think we'll get there on, on quality eventually mm -hmm. once it's like, oh, so this is actually just really good stuff. So if we're going to have, you know sake on the menu we should have this um but we'll you know we, we'll have to fight for that space i i think a lot just because of the naming it, it, it kind of in a way it almost pulls us out of that space a little bit but at the same time i mean if you think of the different vocabulary in japanese that just that resonates with people universally and has nothing but just a really positive connotation I mean, the only thing maybe more than origami is maybe like karate or something like that. You know, I mean, there's which there sounds a little aggressive, a <laughs> which sounds a little aggressive, right? You know, and so it's and like you said, because there's so many just really everybody has that association. I mean, I remember even when I was in school, it was standard curriculum that like in second grade, you know, you spend a week studying Japan and you learn how mm. to do origami and stuff like that. You know, and mm. that that apparently talking to people that wasn't a unique experience. That seems like a thing that is just sort of part of a lot of people growing up in the US and Europe and elsewhere that like the story that's it's a catalyst for teaching culture and the Japanese culture outside of Japan is using origami as a means to do that and telling stories and doing this thing. So it's something that is already ingrained into people's, you know, um, understanding. Hmm. Um, and so to have a piece of vocabulary like that, like it's so powerful, you know, and the real and, you know, it, like I said, we're hoping that we can have our sake on, you know, the shelves of a Kroger supermarket or a Whole Foods supermarket or, a, you know, someplace like that. And in a place like that, a name like Origami, you know, I think could really thrive, mm. you know. But, so just so. jumping back um, to to your role at the brewery, um, for those yeah. that perhaps have, have listened along thus far and are still a little bit unsure or unclear as to exactly what your role is in yeah. a nutshell, in a nutshell, just let us know yeah. um, because you're brewing, right? So, so let us know your, yeah. your actual role there at Oregon. Yeah. So as the same as when I was in Japan, I have like the vaguest titles you could possibly have because <laughs> um, that leave a lot of room for interpretation. Um, just because I actually I never know what I'll end up be doing. Um, but yes, brewing is a big part of it. So my official title is Director of Brewing Relations. 
So I'm the, I'm the head of the brewery, the brewing relations division, um, which essentially means that um, it's my role to figure out how we're going to make what it is we decide we ought to create and then how to realize that in the brewery. Um, and so, like I said, we're working closely with um, um, folks at Nambu Beijing. Um, we are, you know, we want to work with and utilize and share the skill and the, and the understanding and stuff of, you know, what um, Japanese breweries are doing as well and be able to um, utilize that here in the brewery. So um, my role is to work closely with those individuals um, while at the same time working with the rest of the the brewing team here and the administrative team, the management team, um, and saying, you know, what should we make? How are we going to do that? Um, what's feasible? What's not feasible? So it's my role to sort of work with them in order to figure out what, how do how do we realize the sake vision that we're trying to create from from product to product or from bottle to bottle? Um, so it's I guess more or less kind of overseeing the the brewing operations, I guess. Um, but it's kind of in a very, I guess, overarching communicative sort of yeah. role. But yes, I am in the brewery doing brewing um, full on. Like that is, that is my role um, as yeah. well. But, you know, I will, once, you know, things get dialed in more, you know, I will, I'm sure I'll be out on the road a fair bit, you know, doing some education stuff with, with distributors mm. or events and things like that. Um, you know, it's, it, it could be a lot of things I'm working with. We've got a stellar um, gentleman by the name of um, Brent here, who's doing our sort of marketing and design and stuff like that. And so I spent, you know, a lot of time working with him, you know, talk, you know, cause we, everybody has to be understanding, right. It's not, you can make something beautiful in the brewery, but if it's not, if that doesn't, get through to the management side then it that that great thing dies before it's ever out the door right sure. or even if the management gets it but it isn't tied into um how that's realized in terms of presentation and stuff like that like it it doesn't reach so it's i'm kind of in this middle position where i'm kind of in between everybody um but with my focus on the mm. brewing component mm. i guess so how many people are working there at the moment yeah, so right now, um, it was so like I said, it was Matt and Ben Bell again of no relation who originally kind of who got the business started. Um, and then before I got here, um, there's a gentleman by the name of Cassidy Harris, um, who's here, he's from um, Louisiana, um, and he helped set up a wetland sake brewery in um, Louisiana. So, as far as the build out for all their like equipment. And how how is everything piped? What sort of equipment are we going to use? Doing all that sort of stuff. So he was working with them on that. Um, he did that. He's worked with other brewing stuff. He's done a couple short stints in Japan. He was at Dewazakura a couple of times for a week here, a week there. Um, he has just an incredible love and passion for sake and for brewing. And so he is kind of the operations manager in the brewery. So like, you know, what do our, you know, how do, how do all of our glycol chilling units work for <laughs> these things? And how does, you know, 
our our well water how does this connect to our you know our um uh, cold liquor tank and how to how how was all the kind of all the technical side between all, all that sort of stuff but he also has experience brewing as well too so he's also a brewer you know uh, on the brewing team and so um it was pretty much just us kind of the four of us until recently um when brent came on um to do um sort of marketing design um stuff like that um so it's the five of us and it's mostly um myself and cassidy in the brewery and then ben comes in and out because he brewed before when he was in you know uh, Nambu Beijing but he's doing a lot more of the kind of the uh management sales sort of stuff because mm -hmm. we get we're trying we got to that's sort of more more his focus um and then yeah and we just made um one more hire that's going to be doing all like social media communications mm -hmm. and all that that sort of outward facing communications so what kind of mm -hmm um entertainment are we going to put out into the world um i haven't met her yet um but she'll be starting in january so mm -hmm. um and then i think that'll pretty much be it for the for the very near future um, um but then yeah. we'll see we have to make sure we can sell sake first yeah <laughs> we have to make sure we can make sake then we have to make sure we can sell sake it all sounds very exciting and we Really look forward to to checking in with you once brewing starts and hearing more. Of course, we could talk all day, all night, um, but looking at the time, we've <laughs> we're heading into what's a what's a standard TWTT Zoom session, which was always going to happen. But Maki, before we wrap up with Justin, any any last questions for for him from from you? Um, so you said you weren't getting any sake in Arkansas. How how are you managing your um your supply of your personal? <laughs> yeah, you know what? So that's that's a really good question, actually. Um, because so to be honest, if I if I if I was here, I wouldn't be a sake drinker. Like straight up, as much as I love it, I wouldn't I wouldn't drink sake here. It doesn't make sense. I can't. Number one, the offerings, just the number of available choices are so small. And to find anything that I'd want to drink, um, um, there was a Chio Musubi one cup for about $9, which I'd go back. I'd go buy one of those every now and then, but it's $9. <laughs> but to get a bottle of, that was like out of everything on this like small shelf, I was like, I'd probably come just like buy one of those once a week, you know, like everything else I have. I'd have to spend at least $35, $40 for, obviously what's great, you know, sake is great, made by great producers or whatever, but it doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. Like, I, I, I can't, even if I wanted to be, I couldn't be a sake drinker. Like, that became very, very clear, like, the moment I got here and we, you know, went and visited a couple of, you know, liquor stores and, you know, so, you know major sellers and things like that places that have great beer and wine and spirits you know programs at their shops and you know and how and do a lot of traffic and you know a lot of people go through but and even if even though they're putting the work in on sake what they have is it's it's so the the pickings are slim and you know a lot of stuff you know we've bought some stuff a lot of it it hasn't 
been handled right. And it doesn't taste amazing, to be honest, you know, and it's, I, I wouldn't, if, you know, just some of the stuff that I've bought and tried, I, I would, I wouldn't go back for another one. I wouldn't buy it again. You know, it just wasn't enjoyable, you know, and it's not because the producer's bad or whatever. It's like, there's just so many things working against, you know, that scenario. You know, if I lived in New York and I was making, you know, 150 grand a year and I, or whatever, 200 grand a year, and I could afford to go out to dinner regularly and buy bottles of sake from a boutique seller. Sure. But that's mm. a reality for so few people. And so, I mean, being out here, we got some great beer breweries around here. We got some bourbon, some moonshine, some all these other things. I'd, <laughs> I'd get into something else, you know? Yeah. Um, it just doesn't make sense. So right. it's, I mean, and, but that's, I mean, that's, it, it, it reconfirmed to me why I'm here as well. Mm. Like that's what we're, that's what we're trying to fix, you yeah, know? Yeah. So, yes. So when we move, but yes, uh, the other answer to your question, Maki Sensei, is that um, when we moved, we brought as many suitcases as we possibly could. And I think it was like one third clothing and goods and like two thirds food and drink related items. And so I packed as much sake as I could and it wasn't that much. So it was like, do I bring one more bottle of sake or yeah. do I bring a good bottle of soy sauce so that my family can, you know, my whole family <laughs> can, you know, dine a little better. You know, it was, we had to make some tough decisions, but um, so, yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, that's it. You know, um, my wife will be going back every few months because she still has to get a lot of visa stuff sorted out. So it'll be me you know, sending her back to Japan with two with an empty suitcase. <laughs> <laughs> but we wish you all the very best. And of course, we will be in touch uh, throughout this journey with you and hopefully have you back on the podcast in a few well, in a few months and uh, just check in, see yeah. how you're going. But um, Justin, yeah, absolutely. I'll have a lot more to share then. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I can speak in probably much more concrete detail at that point. Yeah, of course. Thank you so, so no, much for making time for us tonight, your tonight and our morning. Uh, we really appreciate it. It's always so wonderful to speak to you. And as I said, all the best with your your endeavor. And we're, we're very happy and excited for you. And we really appreciate um, being able to speak with you today. So thank you again, Justin. Thank you, Maki. And thank you, everybody, for tuning in. And until next time, stay safe, be kind, and keep enjoying sake. <laughs> Sonny